0: Welcome to episode 48 of the Pete Primo Show. We are here with Mike Weinberg. You can't handle the truth. That is the sales truth. Mike, welcome to the show. eat thanks for having me. What a treat. It's a treat for me to have the honey badger on. Uh, Mike is the author of the best B2B uh, sales Prospecting book ever, the best B2B and sales management book ever. And not least, The Sales Truth. And this is a must have book for anybody that's in sales. I will try not to gush over Mike, but Mike is one of my heroes. Um, And I have to do two things right now. I have to say hi to our sponsors and get the bills paid. So sell a million. If you haven't bought my book, what are you waiting for? If you own a furniture or mattress store, you need to get this. It's less than a couple cups of coffee. Pretty soon, a cup of coffee. And the Mattress Industry Network. You guys are near and dear to my heart. Steve, thank you for your sponsorship. I appreciate you more than you'll ever know. If you are in the mattress industry in any way, shape, or form, you need to join this free Facebook group. Um, It is the only group that I know of that is run by retailers for retailers. If you want to learn how to buy better, how to build your business, how to market, how to sell and succeed in the mattress industry, you have to join the Mattress Industry Network Group. It's a free group. And with that, the bills are paid. Mike, welcome. Welcome. I will try not to gush over you too much. You can stop gushing. I just want to thank It's going to be hard.
1: Sure. Listen, between holding up the, uh, you know, the advanced copy of sales truth, which you were on that launch team, which makes me smile and your sport and your t-shirt today. I'm so thrilled to be here and I love the stuff we're going to cover. So thank you.
0: No, the pleasure is all mine and it couldn't happen on Thanksgiving week. Right. We have so much to be thankful for. Um, so much to be thankful for. I mean, uh, from the country that we live in to the ability to to uh, share our faiths and the ability to uh, uh, to be in a free market system and, mm-hmm. and to be able to rise according to our efforts and our aptitude. Um, and I have to. I, I want to start this off. With something that sounds a little counterintuitive, and and you like to kind of do that, Mike, to stop us and make us think, and that is, can you talk a little bit about being selfishly productive, both as a salesman and then as a sales manager, and of course as a store owner too? Yeah,
1: that's great. I uh, I like to I like to start up when I'm when I'm in a workshop or I'm talking with salespeople or sales leaders to make them think about the word selfish for a minute because from the time we're little kids right the word selfish kind of gets a bad rap right we're told oh come on share your cookies share your toys and now that we're adults share your calendar and the truth is almost everyone i work with is overwhelmed at some level right we all have an addiction issue with this thing people are coming at us from every direction um, there's more stuff being put on our plate than we could ever get to right we we w- we want to be nice we want we want to be good corporate team players. We want to say yes when people ask us for help. On LinkedIn, when we get requests from people we don't even know that want our opinion or to speak into something. like Inside, we want to be the person who's available to help them. But the reality is that there's just too much stuff. There are too many people pounding on us. There are too many distractions. There are companies that have lost sight of our our primary job. We often lose sight of our primary job. And the reality is that the most effective and highest-producing salespeople And the same for for managers, entrepreneurs, business owners, are the people who are selfish, but they're selfish in a good way. They're selfishly productive. I kind of coined that phrase when I started really teaching productivity. And the reality is, I I tell my clients this, in the last couple of years, I've probably spent $5,000 investing in myself and personal productivity whether it's attending workshops, uh, purchasing online content, other materials, because I'm a mess when it comes to being productive. I can't get to all the stuff that's on my plate. And then I have to teach productivity because that's one of the biggest issues in sales. And we'll, we'll talk about you know, time management, time blocking, etc. as we go on. But one of the things that that is universal, no matter whether you're reading from Near Isle in the book Indistractable or you're at Michael Hyatt's free-to-focus workshop or his course, or you're, you're reading deep work from Cal Newport, whoever you're talking to, at the end of the day, if you're really going to be more productive, it comes down to what you're going to, to, to delete or delegate. right? What are the things in your calendar that you've got to eliminate? You can't do it all. You can't hang on to it. So what I'm regularly pushing salespeople, particularly salespeople, we got to get to our calendar first. And we got to be selfishly productive. And we got to carve out some time to work on the precious few. And I mean, it's a precious few, high impact, high value, high payoff activities that move the needle, that create, that advance, that close sales. And you got to learn to be selfish enough so you can be productive to say no and delegate or delete some of those other lower value tasks, even though they might be good, they might be easy, they might be attractive. They get in the way of us doing the very few things that make money. So that's where selfishly productive comes from. It's taking back that word and not letting it have that negative connotation, but actually a positive one for you to bring maximum impact to your customer, to your company, to your own income. You got to be selfish with your time.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I am constantly saying, is your best friend uh, and encouraging both sales reps and store owners, especially who really don't have enough time to do everything that they're called upon to do. What will you say no to? And, and you need to create time away from the business. You can't do it while you've got a phone here and a phone there, and you've got somebody in front of you. You've got to steal away, Got to actually time block. Store owners need a time block, just like professional salespeople need a time block. So let's just go right into that um, because that makes sense. Yeah, well, listen, you don't... If you're a business owner
1: or you're a salesperson, you don't get paid to do work. Let's just, let's just cut to the chase, right? Where does it all, Pete, where does it all come down to? You get paid to close business, right? You got to, you got to ring the cash register. So no one cares that you get to inbox zero. Nobody cares that you drove thousands of miles this week or how many hours you worked or how many hundreds of emails a day you processed. It's all nice. And you can brag about all that stuff on LinkedIn. If you want, it doesn't, it doesn't mean anything. At the the end of the day, right in sales, there are three verbs. I mentioned them earlier. You got to create new opportunities. You have to advance existing opportunities. And you have to close hot opportunities. And if we're spending time in an inordinate amount of our schedule as sellers, where we're not creating, advancing, or closing sales, we're probably working on the wrong thing. And listen, time management, we all know this, right? And I'm old enough and I got my hair cut. So the gray is really standing out right now, right? And I'm kind of doing no shave November, right? It's not pretty. There's a lot of gray. I earned this gray hair, but I'm old (laughs) enough to remember the Franklin Planner, right? Back in the nineties, I spent the $400 to get that seven ring proprietary thing with the, with the inserts. And you know what? The Franklin Planner did not solve our time manager problems. And all of the apps in the app store today aren't solving our time manager problems. You cannot manage time. It's unmanageable, right? It's an unsolvable problem. The one thing. I mean, the one thing successful business owners and salespeople do is they block their time. N- near Isle calls it boxing it. A lot of people call it time blocking it. And my really simple definition, I mean, I, when I, I don't often tell salespeople in a meeting, write this down, but when I say this, I'm like, write this down. Time blocking is the discipline. It's a keyword which none of us are really good at. The discipline of making appointments with yourself to work on your high payoff activities. And there's an offensive and a defensive reason we do it, right? Offensively, we, we time block because we must carve out that time in our calendar to work on nothing but a single high payoff activity where we close off all inbound communication. We don't get distracted by instant messages or texts or social media or maybe even emails from customers but we're laser focused on the one thing we're going to get done in that period of time. Maybe it's 45 minutes, maybe it's an hour, right? So offensively, it it ensures that we get that stuff done. It doesn't fall to the wayside because there's always something urgent that gets in the way. But from a defensive posture, the the time block allows you to say no to everything else, right, and block it out for that limited, finite period of time. And what I'm regularly reminding uh, hyper-conscientious salespeople is this. You know, they're so panicked. Well, what if, what if a customer prospect calls me and I'm in a time block? Like, don't, don't I need to answer it? Or shouldn't I be checking my email? And I'm like, listen, you're not George Clooney. You're not that good looking. You didn't you didn't play it. You're not an emergency room doctor, right? Like on ER. No one's going to die if you don't get back to them for 45 minutes. And that's the reality, right? If you, if you get a message from a prospect or a customer that has a need and it takes you, you know, you're just in the first minute of a one hour time block and they have to wait 59 minutes for you to respond to them if your system is set up in your company or your world where you're on call and someone is truly going to die on the operating table because you can't get to them in 59 minutes i think something is fundamentally broken in your in your setup right yeah. unless yeah. you're unless you're in charge of customer service or you're a tech that you know where there's a customer that has something that goes down and they're going to go out of business if they don't get this thing fixed immediately and you're the guy with the expertise or the tool most people, if you got back to them 59 minutes later after they contacted you, would think that's incredibly good response time. So yeah. we, we we're, we're like hypersensitive though. You tracking with me? Like it's 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 the discipline. That one hour, I'm going to work on one thing that I need to do to move the needle in my business, and everything else can wait. Someone else can be guarding the door for the fire or taking the phone call.
0: Is that fair? Yeah. Yep. It's uh, it's it's more than fair, and uh, the reminders and and. Both of you all three of your books are, are something that most salespeople need to hear, um, because at the end of the day, I, I remember when I hired my business partner, and uh, you know he started off as, as as a salesperson and became my partner very quickly. Um, I told him, I, I, "Don't tell me where you're going. I don't care. Don't tell me who you had conversations with. I don't care. The only thing I care about is sales." So. At the end of the day, just save all that stuff. It's different with us. It's not going to be what you, you, you're you used to. The, the only thing at the end of the day that matters is sales. So, Mike, you have a coaching practice and you have a consultant practice with, with companies. And are there any unexpected lessons that you've learned over the years? Things that you took for granted and assumed they were a-okay. And as you dove deeper into the corporate culture, you started to uncover things that you never thought you'd really see and surprised you. Yeah. That's interesting. I wasn't expecting. Sorry about to that. Question.
1: I'm good for that. I like that. it a lot. Yeah. And, it's, and it, I'm always learning things every time I do an engagement, right? I learn from the best and I steal their best practices and share them with everybody else. And I I see a lot of dysfunction. I will tell you my biggest surprise, one of the biggest surprises, as I've been doing this for a long time now, is having a deal... And you said corporate culture. I'm going to go down that path. Having to deal with an anti-sales culture. Because in the first company, I was a salesperson. Man, the the CEO was a seller. And he loved the sales team and was pro-sales. And then in the, the company where I really learned how to be a hunter... Right, where I became the, the top-producing salesperson in a, in a B2B hunting, prospecting environment. That company had a super healthy sales culture. And it wasn't until I left there and went a couple other places and then went out on my own that I realized that very often there's an anti-sales culture that, that rules the day. And whether that means it's the, it's a high-tech or an engineering or manufacturing company that's run by some really smart people that founded it that have a very high view of engineering or manufacturing... Right. Or finance, but a low view of the sales function. Right. So they, they're very quick to blame the salespeople when business isn't what it should be. But when things are great, they're, they're very quick to steal the credit and, 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 and point to product or engineering or operations and give them, right. The glory and the applause for what's going on. And I'm amused at how often I see either uh, a big company. Where the salespeople really aren't respected as a profession, so there's this anti-sales thing where it's okay to pick on and belittle um, the salespeople. We may even demean them publicly, but we don't we don't praise them and give them and then the glory. To other companies where I see where there's overempowered, uh, control freak financial people who like get their jollies from making random uh, commission deductions and torturing salespeople with with different types of reports to companies that regularly jack around with territories and customer assignments to, to make life really challenging for a salesperson, almost to the place where I would question their integrity. Like when someone finally starts figuring out and making some good money on the comp plan, then they go and they mess with it. So I am amused at and angered, honestly, how often I see some level of an anti-sales culture. And sometimes it's not as blatant as some of the egregious things I'm sharing here. Sometimes it's as simple as, you know, it's a company that runs lean. So they don't have enough support staff or enough customer service or enough people back in the plant or the factory or the warehouse, you know, plug in whatever you want. So senior management uses salespeople in a kind of uh, nonchalant way where they kind of take advantage of salespeople and view them as free labor. So, they have them run some parts out to customers, or they'll have them go in the back and pick some orders for a certain type of shipping, or you know when the phone lines are busy they'll the customer service phone line will will roll over and ring a salesperson's desk and it all sounds really subtle until you're not making your sales numbers and Pete, I've had engagements where I was brought in by senior executives because the sales team wasn't delivering the results and After I went in and pulled back the covers and started observing what was going on, I had to go back to the senior executive and hold up a mirror and say, hey, I hear you. And you know what? Your team could do better. They could tell a better story. They could be more strategic in their targeting. They could certainly prospect more. Uh, They could run more consultative or consultative sales calls. There's a lot of things they can improve. But you know what your number one issue is? Your people don't spend enough time selling. And some of it's their own fault because they get distracted and they love to go play glorified customer service clerk because that's easier than than picking up the phone a prospect or going to see a difficult account and try to grow it. Yeah, But some of the challenge isn't the salesperson, it's you. And you're using them and abusing them and distracting them and diverting them from their primary job because you have them doing all these things or sitting on these committees or attending these meetings. And it keeps them from creating, advancing, and closing sales. So
0: anti-sales shows up in lots of different ways. Yeah. I've twice in my career, Mike, in 39 years, seen... senior-level salespeople and sales managers get into warehouses and actually become part of operations because Mm -hmm. the situation was so bad, the service to the customers was so bad that sales actually had to embarrass them. And it should never happen. Let me see what Jeff's got. Jeff... Janakovo, one of my favorite people in the world. Spot on about being intentional on growth. So so many intend on growing, but take so little real action to do so. Yeah. And Jeff, we've talked about this a bunch and Mike talks about it in his books and every LinkedIn post practically. It's nice to read something. But what did you implement? What did you change? One of the exercises that I went through, I went through Mike's books again and I said, what of this did I incorporate? I was really, really pleasantly surprised to see that most of it I've incorporated. But to be real, there's still a few things I gotta I've gotta sharpen up on. And I think that there's probably very few executives um, or store owners. That really have frank discussions with themselves about mm. these things, and these things aren't easy. So, Mike, if I were you, hey Pete, let me pick up on one thing you just said because it's,
1: sure. it's it's like a it's a common topic right now. And sure, you're referencing a post I put up a couple of weeks ago where I I talked about one of my clients who came back to an event for the second time, and I was like, "What are you doing here again? Like, you know all this stuff." He goes, "Mike, the ROI goes to those who implement." And I want to make sure I'm mastering how I implement some of these key concepts as a, as a leader. And I'm I'm just telling you, there today, there's so much information. We've all got information overload. And honestly, I, the, someone, I think it was Paul Salamaka, I forgot how to say his name, but on, on LinkedIn, he said it a couple of days ago. He said, you know what the most important thing you could probably do right now is stop reading my LinkedIn post and stop looking for some other answer and go do your job. And it's like when I get, I, t- I told the story recently in another post where Some salesperson proudly wrote me a note to brag about, you know, I read nine books in the last year, including several of yours and then several of my friends, all amazing books, right? And they said, what do you think I should read next? And this is weird to say as an author, I said, you don't need to read anything. You need to get into action. Like if you've read nine sales books and they're all good, the books he told me he's read, these are all great books. You don't need to read my other book you haven't read. You don't need to read anybody's book. Why don't you implement the two or three takeaways from each of the things you read? You'll you you have more sales knowledge than anyone in the world needs. You could be the number one salesperson. But some people look for the education as an excuse not to get into action. And yeah. it doesn't work that way. You know?
0: Yeah, yep, yep. So here's a question. If I was you, I would ask me. Pete hey Pete, let me ask you this. Pete, it's obvious you love me. When and how did you fall in love with me? New Sales Simplified in your introduction. I love sales. First first three words. The first three words. Yeah. yeah, I love sales. Now, I'm going to get into a little bit more detail on page 40. But this really made me fall in love with you. And I'll let you kind of Go back and and, and clean this up. But this is, these are Mike's pardon thoughts to a former client. Sales is not accounting, it's not warehouse work. For that matter, it's not like any other job. Sales is about connecting with other people. When sales reps walk into an account, their demeanor, their pride in the company, their energy level, Their confidence, their ability to personally connect with the buyer all matter a lot. Salespeople have to believe in their company and they must have their hearts engaged to succeed. That's where I fell in love with you right there.
1: Hey, yeah, thank you. We're aligned on that one. You know, I think there's a whole lot of people that think sales is all about mechanics and intellect and process. And right there, my mentor, Donnie Williams, he'd always say... It's more about the heart than the head and we better we business owners we in management we better remember that when we're leading our sales teams or our, our one salesperson and you know it's always a challenge right to hire good talent and obviously right now we're living in the most bizarre time right where yeah. like it was hard to find highly talented salespeople before the great resignation or whatever the heck we're calling this this <laughs> bizarre thing we're in right now you if you have someone good on your team you cannot afford to lose them. Right. Now just throwing that in there is like a fight. Like, what are you doing to keep, maintain and keep happy and maximize the performance of your best salespeople? That's a great question to ask yourself every week. What are you doing to keep and maximize the performance of your best salespeople? Because you can't, I'd rather lose a giant customer than lose a great salesperson. I can replace the customer. It's really hard to replace the talent. Yeah. And that you're, that passage you read there, Peter, it made me think of that because salespeople have to have their heart in the game. And it's up to us as the leader to make sure that they are treated appropriately and energized and motivated and accountable um, and not just
0: let, you know, run off by themselves or without accountability. And w- when I look back in my career and I look back at the uh, bosses that I loved the most and who were able to get the most out of me, it was always the ones who treated me um As a valued member of the team, and my opinion mattered. And before he ever went to the rest of the salespeople, he would bounce things off of me. Mm-hmm. He would say, "What do you think about this as a change, or maybe this other possibility?" Now he already knew what he he was going to do. <laughs> he was just bringing me there slowly so that I was on board when we introduced it to the rest. But he of the also team. knew
1: you. The way you described that. He knew enough to know that for you, and it's funny, we're wired very similarly. Like I didn't want to be put up on the stage as a top salesperson and given awards. I didn't really care about the public recognition. I wanted what you like. Call me in your office. Tell me I'm making a big dent in the business and you appreciate me and then get my opinion on something that matters. And he knew that about you. You know, and you know what that shows that he understood how you were wired and he wanted, he wanted to make you feel valued. And that little bit of effort, how far did that go? Right. In yep. terms of keeping your head in the game and you feeling appreciated. That's huge. Absolutely huge.
0: So store owners, you have salespeople and you're having a hard time keeping them. Make sure that they feel appreciated and they feel valued. That is that is a really good takeaway mm-hmm. uh, from, from this conversation. Common mistakes in managing salespeople. We've kind of tripped over it. Listen, you know you've got. I mean, I have 39 years of experience, but because of your coaching and your consulting that you've been doing, Mike, you you like have thousands of years of experience mm-hmm. because you're talking to all these people in all these different industries all the time, and you're seeing uh, the mistakes mm-hmm. that they made. Because you're going in and you're deep diving. I mean, you're one of these consultants that, you know, you you don't just talk to the executives, you talk to the salespeople, you get in cars, you drive with salespeople, you find out what's going on uh, where the rubber meets the road and you hear both sides of it and then, you know, go in and and do your magic. But you see you probably see more mistakes in managing salespeople than most people do in in a lifetime maybe so can you talk about that a little bit yeah there's it's a
1: long list right here's what's yeah. interesting though Pete the issues are really common from company to company and you said it I feel like I do have thousands of years of experience because you do when you go into all these companies and you keep seeing the same thing over and over again it really validates what's going on and it's why sometimes it's it's Relatively easy for me to identify what the one or two things that are really getting in the way of success are because I've seen them play out in other places. You know, you asked me to start off that, this section about, well, what, what am I seeing that where we make mistakes when it comes to managing salespeople? Yeah. And, and this is going to be a really weird one to start with because in particular, we're broadcasting this on numerous, on on numerous platforms right now, including LinkedIn, right? And, And, and LinkedIn is, is great. And yet, it's also a cesspool, um, and it's it's got its issues right now. And I I'm trying everywhere I can to make fun of people who make who keep doing these polls every day, as they're <laughs> playing the algorithm. And but there's so much bad you know advice on LinkedIn It's really popular, but it's 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 incorrect, right? Just because someone gets a lot of likes or they have a following, it doesn't mean what they're saying is actually helpful to you, right? sometimes I think the value of some people's posts is inversely proportional to their popularity. Like the barrier to entry to being a thought leader in sales is a LinkedIn connection, a LinkedIn profile and an internet connection. So just be careful what you're reading. And what I'll tell you is, while it's really popular today to talk about sales enablement and sales coaching and cadences and tech stacks and plugins. And there's thousands of sales tool vendors, thousands of sales tool vendors spending a gazillion dollars trying to get our attention and spamming us on our inboxes and posting all this stuff online. And you know what? I'm all for enabling salespeople. I'm all for helping them be more effective. I'm all for arming and equipping them. But there's a reality when it comes to sales management. You know what trumps enablement and coaching and tech stacks every day and twice on the day the sales report gets released? Accountability. And, and Pete, I can make the case for you. And this was a really a big wake-up call for me because I did not understand this early in my consulting career and before I had gone back to be a sales leader, a manager, and executive. I didn't understand that one of the most important jobs of the sales manager, maybe the most important job, is to ensure the salespeople are doing their job because we're all busy. We're all distracted. We all play glorified customer service rep. There's always papers to push, emails to process, customer service buyers to put out. But where is the good accountability? Where are those one-on-one meetings? Where is the publishing of sales reports and results? Where's the manager sitting down with a struggling salesperson? Go, Hey, can we take a look at this together? Let's look at what you've actually sold against your goal. And here's where you rank on the team. And let's dive into your pipeline and see what you're working right now. Because your results haven't been great. Let's make sure they're going to be great in the future. Like That little string of questions I just asked there, if managers would actually have that conversation, not in a demeaning or belittling or de- demotivating or micromanaging way, but in a results and growth-focused way and pipeline-focused way, radical transformation takes place and what I'm continually amused at is how few managers do real accountability like they'll spend forever coaching someone and trying to talk them into how to sell or asking really good leading questions and doing all these like uh, strategic coaching scenarios which I love but how often do we shine the light of truth on somebody's results against their goal and go hey what happened here or hey congratulations man you blew your number away that's great how do I know you're going to blow your number away next month? Let's take a look in your pipeline and how yeah. can I help you? So, so Pete, one of the big mistakes is we've ignored accountability when the one thing we really want most is results. And yet we don't pay enough attention to results and, and, and report and track them and talk about them enough. It's
0: huge. Biggest, probably the biggest thing I see right now. Let, let me throw this at you, Mike. Yeah. This is an interesting question. And I, I, I see it happen at retail. I see it happen at wholesale. You take your best, um, and it happens two ways. Mm-hmm. You take your best salesperson uh, with little or no coaching, and you make him or her a sales manager, and, and next thing you know, you got a wipeout on your hands. And two, you take the worst salesperson, because the last time you did that, The best salesperson left the company because, um, you know, and you don't want to make that mistake. So you take the worst salesperson who couldn't sell his or her way out of a paper bag to save their life. How do you avoid these two mistakes? And what are the indicators of uh, somebody that is ready for management, has the aptitude, and probably the more correct way of asking that question, the temperament? That's good. Because... Because to me, it's it, it's more about this and and this when it comes to being a sales manager. You know, somebody... Well, I'm not going to answer my own question. I'm no, I mean, I keep going.
1: I, 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 let's dialogue on this because this is a huge topic. And the truth is, the wrong sales manager could destroy your company, could destroy your sales team, destroy morale, run off good talent. And what no one wants to talk about is something I said in, in, in Sales Manager Simplified. The jobs are very different. In fact, I made the point that one of the only things similar between the sales individual producer, contributor job, salesperson, and the sales management job is the word sales. And I just want you to think about that. The salesperson wins by being selfish, by not looking out for other people, but focusing on your own business. Right? It's the opposite when you become the leader. It's about the other people and winning through them, not on your own. You're not supposed to be the hero of the team when you're the manager. You're supposed to be turning your people into the heroes. You have to subdue your own ego. right? In sales, often, it's the ego that drives us. In sales management, actually, it's the opposite. It's letting, right. your, letting your people shine. So it's very dangerous. So there are top sales producers. There are incredibly talented salespeople that become wonderful high performing sales leaders because they have leadership gifts and maybe they've been mentored how to manage and how to lead people but there's a whole lot of other top producers that are clueless about that and they struggle and they flail and they fail and like I did in my first sales manager job I, my first 6 months were brutally brutally painful i tell the story in the first chapter sales manager simplified I didn't understand how much admin was involved, and how much detail, and how much how little time I would get to spend doing the things I loved, which was helping salespeople sell. Because I got all caught up in the corporate machinery, and I had to get my 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 footing and understand I can't let everyone tell me how to do my job. So it's a really big challenge to go from top salesperson to sales manager. The thing I would encourage owners and and senior leaders to look for are leadership traits, and someone that understands how to win. By building a team, by deferring to others, by building into people, by not having to take all the credit or be a control freak where they're, you know, they're telling everybody exactly what to do and how to do it. So that's, that's a big concern. But I don't want to dissuade people from necessarily promoting someone who's great at sales into management. I would just tell you to do it slowly because it's really hard to replace that top salesperson and you're going to lose a ton of production when you pull them out of their producer role. So I would do it slowly. And I would also really make sure they have a grasp on what is the manager's job because it's not just running around being the hero, doing everybody's job for them because that's neither sustainable nor scalable, right? You are not multiplying themselves. So that's the first part. And I mean, I'll let you go down the path. Why don't you talk about what happens (laughs) when you promote your worst performer? I don't see that happen too often, but if you make someone who's really struggling into the manager, Ooh, that's yeah. that's a dangerous place to be, right?
0: It's very dangerous because usually they uh they understand that they shouldn't have been promoted and they have uh some self-doubts and they project that onto their salespeople and they love to beat up on uh, you know, in Carson's uh book, you know, poor Vincent had this sales leader that was just beaten up on them constantly. And I, I don't think any of us have, have lasted too awful long without having experienced that, sadly. Um, and uh, one of the things that I, I i would say is if you think that your best salesperson is ready to be a sales leader, look Look at if he or she is actively mentoring other people. Mm-hmm. Are they starting? Are they starting to become a sales manager? Are they mentoring? Are are and are they quick to give credit to other people? Strong people give credit to other people. Weak people take all the credit for themselves. So that's all I got to say about that, Mike. No, Pete, that, that
1: what you just said so so wise. One of my smartest pastors. I mean, he 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 basically operated the same way you just described watching salespeople. He said, you know, you're trying to figure out who should be in church leadership. He goes, look around. Who is leading people before they're in some official role? Who's out there doing the mentoring, right? And And building relationships and building themselves into people and leading naturally because it's in their gift set and it's in their passion right? And what, what you just described is, 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 is spot on. You will see those behaviors and those attributes in the people that are wired like that. And if they have not shown you a tendency to want to invest or to want to subdue their own ego, it probably is telling you something right there. So I love that you brought that up. That's very powerful. And the flip side is true too.
0: The, the person that maybe not the greatest salesperson in the world uh, brought into management they tend to blame. Uh, They tend to point fingers. And, you know, if I'm an executive and I'm trying to coach a a manager, I'm going to start asking some difficult questions. I'm going to start asking questions like, okay, so they're not where we need them to be how do we get them there? Do they have the temperament? Do they have the character? Do they have the aptitude to get there with the proper coaching? And you as their coach, what have you done?
1: Pete, I I totally affirm that. A lot of times, (laughs) Pete, I'll get asked. I'll get asked by senior executives. Okay, Mike, you're always showing the managers how to hold the salespeople accountable. Can you help me? And it's, it's, it's rare, right? When you get a senior, senior executive, you know, in yeah. the corner saying, hey, I, I love that you're helping the managers hold their people accountable. How do I have that same accountability meeting and develop meeting with my managers? right? Yeah. And it's what you just said. Because some of it is that the, the parameters change. Instead of asking about necessarily the pipeline or the activity, it's about the talent development. And one of the key things I'm always working with executives on is, are you working with your managers to ask them the question, who are you developing right now? And who on your team should have a giant question Question mark on their chest that you should be in the process of coaching up to an acceptable level of performance or beginning to coach out. Because yeah. if you don't address that, it's management malpractice. So, yeah. so the key from the senior leader is absolutely are, are your people developing talent? Are they dealing with underperformance at the same time? Who on your team, Mr. or Miss Manager looks like they're promotable and are you mentoring for the next leadership role and working on their career plan with them and, and doing the right things to mentor them? So they are ready for the next move as well. Like, that's very powerful. But because today we're all so busy and overwhelmed, that intentional mentoring has gone by the wayside. I am incredibly frustrated. And while it's great for my sales training business, I mean, I sell a lot of content and a lot of training sessions because internal management isn't mentoring and coaching. I would be just fine if I had less business doing that, and and managers were doing what they used to do in the old days which was build into their people work alongside them prepare them for sales calls watch what they're doing right model what should be done debrief afterwards and discuss what could be done better and work on some type of development plan like i am i and i say this humbly and i just it's it's accurate my success in sales and even a lot of my success as a consultant was because i was mentored like I didn't, I didn't make this stuff up on the own. I had really good executive from my dad to CEOs to sales managers that built to other salespeople. I watched to my friend Ron, who I think you're already asking about in sales truth who yeah. built into me. Like they, I, I copied what they showed me and I listened to their advice and I took their correction and I, I point to all those people and say, I didn't get to where I'm sitting on my own or cause I was like naturally wonderful. Or I had some great theories. I had really smart people build truth into me as a younger person and not let me coast. And yet today I see all these frustrated managers. They're like, well, they're not doing it. I'm like, well, what are you doing about it? <laughs> you're stuck with your head buried in a CRM or you're sitting in some stupid ass corporate meeting, but you're not yeah. out coaching your people or watching them. So I'm sorry, I got a little wound up there, but
0: No, that's what the honey badger does. Yeah. Uh Dan Jordan, thank you for being. Uh, I've seen both your comments. Amen. Back to you. And uh, if if you are looking at me, and you, I'm like a kid in a candy store, I I just am. I'm just relishing this time with with uh, with Mike Weinberg right now. So thank you, Dan, for being here, and thank you for all you do. Thank you for always being positive and uh, showing us the way. So. I wanted you to talk a little bit about Tom and Ron, and one of the things that I've said to my dealers time and time again: they'll ask me about a salesperson, and I said I'm not going to be able to tell you about your salesperson just with my initial, my initial first blush at Mm -hmm. my conversation with them. But it's it's just like athletics put them on the field, kick them around a little bit see if they get back up and dust themselves off and keep going. And do they take coaching? Do they get better? that That's, uh, you know, that's where you see um, someone who's going to be successful. And, you know, it, it, it's funny. I listened to what you said, Mike, and, and I, The first time I heard this, I wanted to punch the guy that said it, Doug Stewart, my friend. He said, there's no such thing as a self-made man. And I go, BS, I'm a self-made man. I made myself. And then I started to think about, hey, Jerry, thank you. Love you, Jerry. I started to think about my parents Uh who told me, not going to be easy, but you can do anything you want in this world. We're not rich. We don't know people. You're just going to have to work really, really hard. And if you're willing to work really, really hard in this country, you can be anything you want to be. Then I had mentors in football coaches primarily, but my sales mentors, I was so blessed, so blessed all the way through. And then I came to the conclusion and I called Doug back up and I said, Doug, I wanted to punch you when you said that, but I am so blessed. I had so many great mentors, but I'm going to say to you what I said to myself. And that's this, Mike. Yes, you've had great mentors. You've had great opportunities, but you had to make the decision that you're going to, A, be coachable and listen to them, and B, do the hard work of implementing the things that you saw them do so naturally and so easily. You had to do the work to get there. Um, so, You know, mentors are huge, and they're everywhere. If if we only have eyes and ears to hear and to see them, uh, they're everywhere. And and Mike, just so that you know this, you have no idea of how many hundreds of thousands of miles you've traveled with me. Mm -hmm. You have been in seven states, my friend. That's cool. Thousands of hours of listening to your books on Audible. I mean, well, that's meaningful, man. Thanks
1: for sharing that. Yeah, it's cool. And it's fun. You know, Pete, I'm, I'm blessed. Like, let's just be honest here. I, this wasn't a plan. You know, I didn't set out to do this. I, I, I talked about the mentors, you know, when I went, broke out on my own to do this, this is my second round doing coaching, consulting, speaking, you know, I don't know it was almost 12 years ago now, you know, I didn't, I didn't know this would happen. You know, I, I'm thankful for the platform and the opportunity. The privilege of going into these companies and flying around the world and getting to meet incredibly talented leaders and salespeople and learn from them and share what I see and just have that type of dialogue. It's its amazing. And I'm i am uber thankful. So I, I thank you for bringing that up. And I'd love to talk about those guys from the sales truth, those two top yeah. producers. Chris, yeah, great let's lessons. Do that. Let me address something. There's a, a neat comment that came in LinkedIn with a question here that I, I mentioned earlier about not, not taking the same course twice. And then the person's asking me about uh, that I'm not doing outbound anymore. So let me just make a quick comment. I, I wasn't telling somebody not to do it twice. Uh, I was curious. This gentleman that came to my sales supercharger sales leadership event came all the way over from from Europe two years in a row, spent a lot of money to come for what basically is a two-day event. And And he and I already had done some coaching. So specifically, I was asking him, what made you come back? I wasn't telling him he was a fool to come back. I was, I was thrilled and thankful. And he was the one that had the line about, the, you know, the, 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 big ROI goes to those who implement. I want to be a master at implementing these concepts. So I, I wasn't against it. I mean, I, I will watch the same thing over and over. And this is going to sound really weird. I'll go back to some of my favorite sales books. Let's get real or let's not play from Ahan Khalsa, Dave Curlin, baseline selling, uh, Jeb's book, fanatical prospecting, right? Some of Anthony's stuff. I'll go back. And I'll reread something. I'll go to my own books. Sometimes before I go lead a workshop, I'll go back and read a chapter or listen to a chapter in one of my own books because I actually forgot how I was teaching it. So I'm a fan of repetition and repeating. In terms of outbound, I have a friend, uh, a couple of friends that went three years in a row. They got something different each time. So I would advocate absolutely go back. I chose to bow out last year because I had so much going on. I mean, so much going on in my own business. That I didn't want the distraction of having to market outbound and do all that. And I love those guys. And I, they, you know, replaced me with Victor Antonio, who's about 10 times the speaker that I am. So bless them. I, I love those guys, all of them, and think they're doing amazing work. And I am a huge fan of outbound. I may or may not rejoin them in the future, but right now I'm trying to be so focused and productive. Like I teach on sticking to what's going on because I have more on my plate than I can get to, but I am not uh, opposed to going back to repeat and in attend into something. And I have several of my own followers and friends that asked me last year, should I go back to app? I'm like, go, I'm not going to be there, but go, you're going to hear amazing things from amazing people and you'll pick up new things and implement. So that's, that's my take on that.
0: Yep. Um, so let's talk about Tom and Ron. They're, they're, they're different, but they're the best at what they do. And where I was kind of going with my my comment is someone who's going to be the best, two things that you're going to notice right away. Number one, they're coachable. And number two, you don't have to do ask them to do anything extra. They will do all the extra on their own. They are not a horse that need to be whipped. They are drunken. I mean, they are secretariat at the gate. Want let me out? Let me, Adam. That's that's who they are. So, oh yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's so just for context for people who are not familiar, what the heck my friend Pete and I are talking about (laughs) the book sales truth has a couple purposes. One purpose was to debunk some myths of the nonsense that's being preached and popular today. And I poked fun at some people in my industry who, who said a lot of bizarre, extreme things or like to jump on bandwagons. And then the other thing I wanted to do is help people become master opportunity creators. So I laid down the truth about what are the five keys to becoming a master opportunity creator. Your attitude, your calendar, targeting, your story, your commitment to prospecting, all those things that really help you become a valuable salesperson. Because my opinion is the fun, the freedom, and the financial rewards, the sales, go to the people who create opportunities, not just the ones who chase them. So being proactive is key. And then I put a wrap on the book by highlighting some best practices. And there's an entire chapter where I just talk about these two people. Uh, one, his real name is Tom. And the other one, I'm calling Ron. He's a very good long-term friend of mine, but we had to protect his identity because he works for one of the largest financial companies in the world. So I call him Ron in the book. That's not his real name. And the title of the chapter is basically, um, I, 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 I was I was trying to get across the point that this, these are the not-so-extraordinary keys to success of these extraordinary, successful salespeople. And the message to everyone that reads this, I was trying to strangely encourage you that the two very best salespeople I've ever seen. Neither of whom are my clients, by the way. So I'm not involved in their success. Like I have nothing to do with it. They were amazing. Before I met him. I've taught neither of these people a thing. I learned more from them than they've learned from me by by 10, a factor of 10. It's the best B2C sales guy I've ever seen. His name Tom. Tom Calkins works here in St. Louis at the Volvo car dealership. He's the number one Volvo car sales guy in North America. I've bought three cars from him. He's the only guy on the planet to ever sell me more than one car. And then the guy, Ron, works for a financial services company. He's the number one person in the country for them. And they couldn't be more different in everything about them, from their politics to their personality, to their appearance, to their approach when they sell. But they're both number one at what they do. They make a fortune. And what I wanted to do is show you what makes them so successful because I wanted to strangely encourage salespeople, you could do what they do. They're not freaks of nature. They don't have supernatural gifts They are really disciplined. They're really competitive. They've mastered the fundamentals. They work their asses off. They know their business. They know their product. They know their customers. They know their competitors and they put forth incredible creativity and incredible effort. And there's nothing for the most part that they do that we can't copy from them. And that's why I wrote that chapter. And I'll just, I'll just add this point because now I got to watch both of them go through COVID. You know, I wrote the book and sales truth came out before COVID. Yeah, but what's so interesting is one of the things that happened, and it was such a bizarre time. And I'm sure, Pete, you know, in, in your and your marketplace where you serve um, the store owners and in the furniture and mattress world, you know, there's a variety of results. And Some people's business really thrived because it drove it drove some demand. In other places, COVID was a killer, and I've heard a lot of excuses, and I, and there are some real excuses during this incredibly difficult last couple of years. But what I've noticed across the board is that gap between top performers and everybody else, that's always pretty significant. COVID stretched it. And it went from this gap to this chasm between what the top people were doing and everybody else was doing. And what's so interesting is I watched Tom and Ron throughout COVID and I've written about this and I teach it in workshops. Both of them had record years in 2020. The, The month that Tom's dealership closed, closed, Locked doors, not open, shut down was the height of the pandemic in May of last year. Okay. And in that month, the guy sold like 65 cars. Find Mm -hmm. me a sales guy in the car business that sells 65 cars in a quarter, let alone in a month. And he did it from home. Like unheard of. It was a record. He never sold more cars in a month in his life because top people do what they have to do. They figure it out. They get creative. They bust the door down. And he did everything possible working from home, working leads, following up on old referrals, asking for more referrals, checking in with whatever he did. He took advantage of every opportunity he could to set a record. Ron in the financial company sold the biggest deal in the company's history to a customer that wouldn't even get on camera with him during the process, right? It's a gazillion dollar plan. I can't say any more to protect confidentiality, but he. Created the opportunity, advanced it, and closed it all during COVID, selling remotely, never getting on that customer site, and then not even showing up on the camera. But he did what you had to do. And I just want salespeople that that hear this to be strangely encouraged. Get the book Sales Truth and read chapter 15 and learn from Tom and Ron. And you can copy what their best practices are because they're not special people. I mean, they're they're special because of their results, and I love them both. But they don't have secret sauce. They don't have tricks. There are no shortcuts. They become masters of their craft. And that's really that's the point I want to preach to everybody in sales. Get off of LinkedIn after this interview and get to work and stop <laughs> stop looking for the trick. You don't need... I've never seen a salesperson fail or struggle because they were missing a cool new new tool or process. They struggle because they don't have a target list. They tell a crappy story. They don't prospect. They don't own their calendar. They run crappy sales calls. That's the, that's the new episode come out of my podcast this week on the sales manager simplified podcast. I'm talking about why we get commoditized and downgraded in the customer's eyes to just vendor and supplier, not consultant, advisor, right? Problem solver. And part of it is we run crappy sales calls. We don't do good discovery. We don't share an agenda. We do the show up and throw up or spray and pray. We don't, we don't flesh out objections. Like no wonder you get commoditized. You don't run, you don't run sales process. So that's, I'll I'll stop my rant, but the thing I learned from watching the very best, I mean, Ron could outsell me under the table in a B2B world and, and Tom, there's no one better in the B2C world. Those guys don't have tricks. And I'm really encouraged by what I've seen from them. And I'm, I would, I would challenge salespeople to learn from that example.
0: Yep. So one of the things that I constantly talk about, Mike, um, yeah, anybody that wants a podcast to listen to, the Sales Simplified Podcast by Mike Weinberg is a great place to start. Um, one of the things I constantly talk to dealers about and sales reps about is go deeper. You know, usually when they're talking about something I usually ask a few questions and within a few questions we get to to the heart of it. Mm-hmm. Constantly throughout your books what you're really talking about is you earn the right to eventually if it's the right fit ask for the sale if it if it's the right fit and the only way you learn if it's the right fit is by doing a lot of diligence and you know one of the things that i loved mike was this death by powerpoint whole thing that you go into and you know what i i started i started doing powerpoints you know what my powerpoint is a blank screen. Tell me about yourself. Tell me about your company and we'll see if there's a a next step, if there's a fit here. But irregardless, you're going to walk away learning a lot of neat things about our industry that you may or may not have heard of because I've been really blessed and I work with a lot of the best companies in the industry. And I I've seen the best practices Mm -hmm. up close and personal, and I I can share those with you. So, you know, constantly you're egging us on to go deeper and and to really earn the sale by uncovering not only their perceived needs, but their real needs. And there's a difference between perceived needs and real needs. Can you riff on that for little bit. Yeah, let me let me just uh, let me applaud you for the bigger the
1: bigger picture conversation. Presenting is not a synonym for selling. Ugh. Pitching and presenting is a piece of the sales process, and particularly for people at retail in your world, right, where there's a store, it's so natural to just start spewing features and benefits and talking about you know what you think might be relevant to the person. But the reality is, you don't really know. And it's sales malpractice. Like in medicine, it's, it's medical malpractice. If you prescribe something to somebody without doing a diagnosis first, right? It's the same thing in sales. If you go in and pitch and present before doing discovery, that's sales malpractice. And there ain't no way you're being viewed as an advisor, a consultant, a trustworthy person if you go in in pitch mode. Like that's not it. My one buddy calls it spray and pray, right? You spray it all out there, you pray, you hit on something. That's not consultative selling. I don't know what that is, but it's amateurish to the max. Yeah. So yeah, we need to understand what, what someone's true needs are and what, where you were going down the path to get more refined in is sometimes what they think they want or need may not be actually accurate, which is why true professionals, and, and this happens to me, I'll just real simple example. Someone calls me up, Mike, what does a training cost? We want you to come train our salespeople. We want you to come in here and do a day and a half workshop. And I'm like, that's great. And that's really expensive. Can I ask you a couple of questions first? why are you asking me for a day and a half workshop? Tell me what's going on with your team. Is it complacency? Is it skill? Is it DNA? Is it compensation? Are they not prospecting? Can they not tell the story? Can they not run a sales call? Are they babysitting their favorite customers? Like, I don't know that you need a day and a half training. What if we could solve this problem for 20% of that price by really understanding what's going on. Maybe we need to do a quick virtual meeting and get a target list nailed down. And I need to help you do some accountability and I can whisper in your ear and you could spend $8,000 instead of $28,000. Maybe that would be better. So to be the consultant, I need to take myself out of sales pitch mode and go into neutral and observe and listen and ask some hard questions and then ask follow-up questions to try to put together the best solution for the client and if we as a as a as a profession would do a better job going in neutral and listening and playing consultant so we did what my dad taught me when i was young in sales your goal is to help the customer win and your yeah. your motivation is to make them successful and help them win you'll always win if that's your why yeah. Let's stop being so driven that we think we have the answer because we have this one thing we sell and play a good consultant. And you may end up sending someone down the street or turning them away because you can't help them. And you know what? That's how you sell with integrity. Right. But anybody can quote a price and spew out some features. I could, anyone that wants to hire me, I could quickly get on the path. Hey, here's all my topics. Here's a great list. I Here's all my testimonials. I'm awesome. I got best selling books. Bring me in. But Do I know I'm producing the best value or getting them the right outcome? I don't. So when you sell with integrity, and I think this comes from Mahan Kalsa, you know, if you slow down the sales process, sometimes you speed up the sale because you have their best interest at heart and you have to check the boxes along the way before you just propose and price.
0: So good morning, Steve. Thank you for your sponsorship. Nothing like jumping in at the end. Awesome sales mail practice. Yes, absolutely. Um, You know, yeah. This is as one of the one of the things that you you know you were going through the list of things that we mechanically have to do to be better salespeople, and what kept just it kept hitting me. It kept hitting me. That's right, Mike. But one thing has to be correct. It has to be aligned. And that is this, your heart. Mm. You, what your father told you was priceless. If your heart is in the right place, you could stumble on your words and everything else. If they can see your heart and feel your heart and know that you will do the right thing always for them, they'll find a way to do business with you. And sharpening up all those aspects is huge this has got to be in the right place first. Yes, and they can
1: smell that on you. When yeah. you sell authentic- authentically and you really communicate that you're about the customer and you're not self-focused, but you're, it's more than just being empathetic. It's that you're driven to get them the best results. Yeah. They know it and they trust you and their guards come down and then you have a different type of dialogue and that weird adversarial dynamic where you're pitching and they're resisting, it all goes away. that's what true salespeople understand. It's a dialogue. It's a conversation that leads you to a position of being the consultant and the advisor. And it's a beautiful thing when that happens because everybody wins.
0: Mike, I told you an hour would go fast. I didn't get to half of what I wanted to get to, but I think that we served up some, some good points that if people embrace them, they'll, they'll make more sales and they'll have more fun doing it. And, uh, Mike, Happy Thanksgiving to you and thank you for all you do for sales and all you've done for me and my family. Thank you're,
1: you. you're Pete, I cannot say thank you enough to you for your ongoing and ceaseless support of my content. And I love the, the impact you're making in the sales community as a whole. Thank you for everything and to your audience. Have a wonderful Thanksgiving if you're here in the US and uh, rest and party well and let's come back and finish this year strong. Amen. Thank you. Amen.